Well, between Atlanta, Georgia and Augusta, Georgia, there's this place. This is like my dream vacation. Um, this is Reynolds Plantation. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a pretty large place. There's like six golf courses and a Ritz-Carlton. That's not really my style. Um, but there's all kinds of amenities there for families, and there's lots of golf to be played. So that's the kind of vacation that I imagine. So about 20, I'm not even going to say how long ago, I had the opportunity to go to this place. And it wasn't as glitzy and as glamorous, but it was an incredible opportunity to go and spend time at a place like this. And I was in college, and so any kind of free vacation that you're going to offer me is uh, with a golf course on it was pretty set up for me, but there was a catch. I had to do a little SWOT analysis to this deal. When I was in college, I didn't know the Lord. I grew up in the church, didn't know the Lord, had a pretty rough experience within the church, and my parents split up within the church, and there was there was a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness at God for that, and so I go to college, and I'm playing golf, and um, meet a guy who's a Christian, and it just so happened providentially that there's this ministry that was kind of rooted and based in the, the city that I was living in called College Golf Fellowship, and what they would do is they would take degenerate college golfers like me who didn't know the Lord, and they would invite them to something like that, and uh, they would bring tour professionals, guys that were playing on the PGA Tour to come and speak. And so my SWOT analysis was pretty simple, all right? There's great golf, there's free lodging, there's free food. I get to hang out with professional golfers. Um, that was the strength of the trip before I decided to go. And the weakness was I have to, uh, and this is just where I was, I have to sit and listen to people talk about the Bible. To sit and listen to people teach me the Bible, and that's not something I was really interested in doing. But golf went out and I went. I went on this trip, and it was a week-long trip, and my motivation was I'm going to get the blessings that I want, and I'll use a Christian organization and a Christian environment to do so. If, if Twitter or social media was around at that time, I probably would have taken a selfie and, and put something like hashtag blessed in the picture to say, this is a great place, I'm glad I'm here. You know, many of us do this though, don't we? I don't know initially for you when you came to the Lord or even as you think about the life that you live now, um, oftentimes our motivations are mixed. I wanted to receive my own blessings. And many of us, at least initially, and maybe even primarily, come to God for what he can give to us. You know, we often are the most savvy of consumers. We see God as the source of many things we want, but we can't get on our own. We often treat God like a vending machine, and you put a prayer in or a faithful church attendance into that vending machine, and you come over here and say, okay, E4, I, wanna, I want good health, and we press that button, and we expect that health to come out, and then we say, you know, I've really served my neighbor well, or I've given to my church, and we put that money in, and or thing in, and then we want, you know, F2, we want that new house, or that we want to maintain our job, and we treat oftentimes God like this vending machine, and maybe even a bigger scale, whether it's health, or whether it's comfort, or ease, or name, or status. The problem is, is that when great loss comes to our life, or struggle comes to our lives, those motivations end up coming out, and they usually are directed at God himself, and say, God, I've done this, and you're not giving me that. We're going to talk about the blessings of God this morning. What, is, what does it mean to be blessed by God? Where do blessings come from, and how do we go about getting the blessings of God, and we might be surprised 
to see the answer. But as we've been studying the book of Genesis, you know, we've gone from chapters 1 through 11, which are foundational to who God is and what he's done in this world. And then we got to Abraham, right? We got to Abraham and we looked at him. For five weeks, we looked at this man of faith, but also this man of a lot, a lot of faults. And last week, Chris unpacked for us kind of part one of Jacob, the deceiver, the the trickster, part one of his life and how he sought, more than anything else, he sought the blessing of God and yet he did it to get his own. He used God for his own purposes. He grasped for it even from the womb to his brother. He deceived his brother Esau. He worked for it with Laban. He worked for Rachel for 20 years for the blessing of God. He dreamed about it at Bethel and the ladder that we read about up to God. He's a man of mixed motivations, just like you and just like me. We're no different really than Jacob in many ways, and today you're going to see him wrestling. You're going to see him wrestling for blessing, but then you're going to see him resting. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought through this. There's a lot of books written on how do I change? How does God change me? And I think God's been working on Jacob for a while when we come to the text we're in this morning, but this is a really key text to understand how God changes the deceiver, Jacob. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. 32, and we'll be in verses 22 through 32, and the big picture really is this, is that Jacob begins as a person who used God to get what he wanted, and then God slowly but surely through circumstance and struggle begins to transform Jacob into a person who's very different, who, a person who wants to know God for God. So Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, we skipped a little bit from last week to this week, so I just want to give you before we dive in and before I read it, here's what's going on. The trickster, the schemer, remember he's got one big problem that he can't work out. He kind of worked through the problem of Laban, his father-in-law, for 20 years. It took him that long. He's worked through some other issues, but there's one person that he still can't work through. And in chapter 33, you see the name Esau mentioned nine times. And you come to chapter, excuse me, 32, and you come to the beginning of chapter 32, and here's what's going on. Uh, Esau has come, and Jacob has sent a messenger, and Jacob says, and the messenger comes back, and he says, hey, Esau's over here. Jacob's probably happy about that, but he's got 400 men. And when the Bible says that there's 400 men, those are soldiers. Those, this is a fight, all right? This is what's going to happen. And so Jacob prays to God. Because he's fearful and he's nervous, so he prays this great prayer to God to deliver him, to be a God of the promise that he's promised him that he would be, but then he also fears. What does he do? He puts like 14 levels of possessions and family in front of him, and he sends messengers with each one to, to Esau. So imagine Esau in the distance and everything Jacob owns, even his family, he sends to Esau in droves and says, when the messenger gets to you, say, Call him my Lord. So what he's doing for 22 verses is he's just appeasing. He's hoping that when Esau, when he finally gets to Esau, that Esau's received so many gifts and so many blessings, all that Jacob has, that he just is appeased. Let me ask you a question, men. When your wife is upset and you've done something wrong to her, let's say you've sinned against her, is appeasement work? When you just show up with the flowers and come to her and, and give her the flowers, does she want the flowers or does she want confession? You know the answer. <laughs> she wants you to own what you've done. 
And here's the ploy of Jacob right here. He wants to appease his brother, and, but here's the problem. You get to the end of your rope when you try to do it your own way eventually. You may be really good at scheming. I may be really good at scheming and planning and strategizing around something, but Jacob can't get past Esau. He's got to deal with Esau. And so he, we come to chapter 32, verse 22. And he's put all these things in front of Esau in verse 22. We pick it up here and I'll read it and then we'll walk back through it. The same night, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So everything's in front of him, everything's headed toward Esau, but now look at Jacob and everything else that he had. So he's put that in front and then look at these words in verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. God does some good work when you get that to that place of struggle. You remember in chapter 28 when he has the dream and he wakes up, what kind of pillow does he have? He's got a rock for a pillow. He has nothing. And that's exactly what he has here. He has nothing. He has a rock for a pillow. And so you get to verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. Your first point about how do we change, there's three things that you're gonna see here. And the first one is this. God relentlessly pursues even his most self-reliant children. Think Jacob, maybe think yourself, particularly in times of struggle. Look at the next words you see in verse 24. And a man, who Jacob's gonna identify later as God, so this is God, this is a theophany, this is an appearance of God. We believe that I believe that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. I've given you some passages below to help you understand that, that this is before Christ came in the New Testament. He's always existed, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, that he comes to him. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And so God will relentlessly pursue even his most self-reliant children, particularly he moves in in times of struggle, in times of solitude when you're alone and you have nothing. Can you imagine the weight that Jacob is feeling trying to strategize and scheme his way around Esau? You know how many years he's wondered what this is gonna be like when he finally has to meet his brother? And he's still scheming. He's still trying to maneuver. That is a weight that he has, and God shows up, and God pursues him. God wrestles with him. This is a really interesting, odd kind of text. It strikes us as odd that God is wrestling with him until the breaking of the day. And so you see him in solitude. He's come to the end of his rope, but God shows up. Notice who's the aggressor here. Is it Jacob, the fighter? Jacob the fighter is not the aggressor here. It says the man wrestled with him, God wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This is God. I don't know, Brandon Dietrich's a wrestler. Is he here today? You know, one of the things that, that happens between wrestlers and boxers, boxers always make fun of wrestlers because, man, boxers goes 12 rounds. Wrestlers go like three rounds. You want to know why wrestlers only go three rounds? Because it's exhausting. It's completely exhausting if you've ever wrestled before. It's completely exhausting. It takes all of it out of him. But here's the thing. Here's, here's what you don't need to think in this passage. Man, God is always in great cardiovascular shape. He's always in good shape. And Jacob is wrestling with God. He's wrestling with God because he doesn't want to let go of his scheming. He doesn't want to let go of his own plans. And he's wrestling with God. And you and I will do that, won't we? 
When we won't give up the ghost of our plans and our strategies and what we care about most, we will wrestle God and continue to wrestle God for those things. But here's the thing, I, don't, I wanna clarify this. I don't think this is really a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. If you've, got any, if you've got any boys in your house, when they get to be about yay high, they start wanting to wrestle dad. Anybody have that in their house? You wanna wrestle dad and test out, test out your skills on dad and see how far you go. It's not really a fair fight until they get a little bit older. Then it's a fair fight. At any point, dad, when you, when you get tired, what do you do? There's just a move that you have that just shuts the whole thing down. And this is what's about to happen with Jacob wrestling with God. See, we will fight for our way. We'll fight for our sin. We'll fight with all of our strength as long as we can. Jacob was doing the same thing that we do. And yet God is relentless. He will pursue us like Jacob, the self-reliant fighter. See, God is never really a neutral. Sometimes we think about this in our lives before God. We think, you know, I've got to move forward with God until he will move. And God is never in neutral. Don't believe that. He's always pursuing his children, his self-reliant children. This is what he's doing here with Jacob. And yet Jacob is a fighter. And Jacob is wrestling with God. You know the passage, we, we often take this passage and we go and take our Bibles and a notebook and a pen and we get alone with God and we often, rightly so, we go to Psalm 46, verse 10. Psalm 46 Verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. And we often apply that, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but we often apply that like, you know, I'm so busy in my life right now, and I've got so much going on in my life right now, I just need to be still and know that he is God and reflect and listen to God. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you know the context of Psalm 46? The context of Psalm 46 is the nation's fighting God. The nation's fighting against God. The new CSB actually translated it that phrase in context, I think a little better. It says, stop fighting. Stop fighting and know that I am God. That adds a lot more flavor to it. It's not just be still because you're busy, it's be still because we we tend to fight. I want you to ask yourself the question, what agitates you right now? What are the things in life that make you wanna fight? That's a great word for this week, I think. Stop fighting (laughs) and know that I am God. That's what our nation is doing right now. We're a few days from an election, and all we're doing is fighting. We're fighting about candidates. We're fighting about how people who like this candidate are fighting against these other people who like this candidate. We live in a culture of social algorithms, social media algorithms that program us to fight. We live in a culture of fighting. And yet God is calling us to stop fighting and know that he is God. See, sometimes we think we are fighting for something noble, perhaps we are, or righteous, and maybe we just find ourselves fighting against God. Do you notice in this passage that at the, at the beginning, it's in the dark, the, the fork of the Jabbok is one of the most desolate places you could go. If you've been there, Jim Cohn could tell you this. If you go there, it's a desolate place. You can't at night see your hand in front of your face, so he can't see who this man is. That's why he calls him a man until later. It's the same reason why God leaves because nobody can see God and live. And so God is in his grace is saying, I've got to go at the breaking of the dawn so you don't die, Jacob. This is often what we do. Sometimes we think we're fighting something noble and we might just find out that we're fighting God. What is God trying to wrestle? Here's a question for you. What is God trying to wrestle from you that you won't give up? You keep fighting him on 
And when you get to those breaking points like Jacob did and God shows up and he engages you, are you willing to engage back with him? There's some neat things that are about to happen here. God has brought Jacob to kind of a breaking point, I think, so God relentlessly pursues even his most self-reliant children. Aren't you glad? (laughs) I am. Particularly in times of struggle, but I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to, to take a Bible and a notebook and get alone, find somewhere alone and listen to God and read your Bible and pray and listen for God's voice and ask him to do a work as a self-reliant follower and child. So first, the first step in change is just knowing God will relentlessly pursue you with his love, but keep looking. Look at verses 25 and verses 26. There's a couple other things. This is really important. Look what happens. When this man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, and all he means by that is Jacob is continuing to come back to the fight, he touched his hip hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and he wrestled with him. You know, I was telling you about the example of father-son. You know, when you come at your dad, kids, for a little while and you're wrestling with him and you continue to wrestle and your dad's got that one move, doesn't he? And he just shuts the whole thing down. At our house, we call that the Blake move. So there was this kid in my old youth group and he would come over. He's a big old kid, like 6'5", lefty, played pro baseball. And uh, we got this phrase because Blake, when William and the kids were a little younger, he would come over and he's huge, not me. He's huge and he would just take William and he would take his legs and his upper body and just sandwich him together like this. And so we've got the Blake mode. I can't do that on him. He's too big anymore. I've got to come up with a new move. But this is what God does. I want you to see the power of God in this. The hip socket. He just touches the hip socket. If you've ever played a sport, I don't see on the many injury lists, on football injury lists, or anywhere on injury lists, hip sockets getting dislocated and busted. Usually what happens first, they tell me, is that your femur... Your femur will break before your hip socket will break. This is a massive thing for, to happen in a body, and so it gives Jacob this limp. No longer, remember the plan? Remember Jacob's plan? His plan was, look, we're going to divide the people, and these people are going to go forward, and if Esau attacks, half of us can leave and we can escape. Guess what? He's got a limp. He ain't going anywhere around Jacob. His plan is shot, completely shot. And so God often, here's your point, God often has to dislocate us from what makes us strong to change us. You know, I I frequently try to miss leg day at the gym. I don't like leg day at all, but this is where our strength and our bodies come from. It comes from our, our legs, and this is exactly where God goes to take Jacob's strength from him, and he gives him a limp. But notice something. He takes this from him. He takes an area of strength and makes it a weakness. And every step that Jacob takes from here forward, he's going to have a limp. So every step that he takes, he's going to be reminded of God and the power of God. But look at verse 26. I love this, and this is often misinterpreted. Look at this. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. That's a grace that God let him go. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Let me tell you what's not going on. And this is hard to know until you read the next chapter, but what's not going on is that Jacob is not still just wanting some earthly, physical blessing. God's taken his hip. He's weak. He has no strength. And so he's clinging 
to God and saying, bless me, care for me, I have to cling to you because I'm weak and you are strong. I think what's happening here is God is taking Jacob's strength away and changing him, showing him physically that I am your strength. I think that's what's going on and most of the commentators would agree that this clinging that he's doing, this thing that he's doing here is not selfish, but he's saying you're the only strength I now have. I'm clinging to you, bless me in that way. There we go. So verse 26, A.W. Tozer said it this way, God has to hurt a person deeply before he can use them significantly. I want you to think about people in the Bible who God had to kind of break, like Jacob. Gave Jacob a limp. I want you to think about Peter. How many disciples that Jesus have were fishermen? There's four of them. Notice how many miracles in the New Testament are about a boat, or about a water, or about fish. (laughs) There's seven of them. And you know what? We, we know that Jesus is demonstrating through his miracles who he is to the people listening, to the people watching, but he's doing it to his disciples as well. These guys were professional fishermen. Remember the time where Jesus comes to Peter and he's like, hey, cast it on that side and just put a hook out there. And you're going to catch something and there's going to be a coin in that fish's mouth. And you think about it. If you're Peter and you are the professional fisherman, and you're Peter, by the way, you're Petros, you're the rock, What are you going to say to the carpenter? Hey, man, you're the carpenter. I'm the fisherman. This is how you do it. Fish will barely take the bait, more or less, just throw out a hook. What is Jesus trying to do? I think Jesus is trying to humble them to say, hey, I know you think you do this really well, but I made the fish. I made the water. I'm I'm the maker of all of this. I know more than you. I've got this. He's trying to humble these men, and if that's not enough, when you come to Peter, you come to Peter right before Jesus is put on the cross, and he comes to his disciples, and he says, I'm going to pray for you because you're going to deny me. Man, I'll take Jesus' prayer. I don't know about you. Maybe I wouldn't if I was him, but what does Peter do? He's like, nah, you know, keep the prayer for those guys. I'm not going to need it. I'm not going to need it because I'm not going to deny you, and Jesus said the cock's going to crow, right? And then what happens? Denies Jesus, the servant girl comes three times, cock crows, and Jesus, he sees Jesus, probably getting scorched at this point. And what happens to Peter when he sees Jesus? He's broken. He weeps. And you know the thing about Peter is, is that when you live in a when you live in an agrarian society like Jerusalem still was in that day, every day of your life, your alarm clock is what? A cock crowing. So every day of his life, he had to wake up to the sound of a cock crowing and reminding him that Jesus had to break him of his pride and self-reliance. Do you love me, Peter? After the resurrection, do you love me? Do you love me? I'm fond of you. I'm fond of you. And then Jesus says, are you fond of me? And Peter says, I love you. He's a changed man, but he had to be broken. Same with Paul. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We think it's something physical that Paul had in his flesh. And he prayed three times that God would take it away. Did God take it away? No. And, God, and, and we find out that Jesus said what? My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in what? Strength? No. Weakness. So God has to break us to significantly use us. 
This is what we see with Peter and Paul and Jacob with a limp. Somebody said it this way, God will not consecrate what he has not crucified. God will not consecrate what he has not crucified. I don't know about you, but I've, I've never, I wish this were true of me. I, I wish that I sat down in my rocker and just contemplated the truth that who God is and what he has done on a cross for me. And I, I, I wish that meant that I could just go, oh, I'm gonna humble myself before God because of who he is and what he's done. And I'm gonna live a reliant life on God in my life. I wish that was the way, I, would, I wish that was just a mental thing that I did. But you know what God has to do? He has to break me. He has to change me through circumstance, through struggle, through saying, no, I want it my way. <laughs> I think this is the way in which God most normally works. What's your story? What's your story? Where has God had to hit you where it hurts to get your attention? What kind of limp has God given you? It may not be physical. It may be physical, but it may be circumstantial. What has done, God done in your life to show you that he's God and you are not? What has he had to do to break you to show you his strength can be perfected in weakness. See, God initiates with Jacob. He loves Jacob, even though he's self-reliant, even though he's a schemer, he loves him and he pursues him. And then he has to break him down to build him up. But look at Jacob's surrender. Look at verse 27. I love this. Look at the surrender of Jacob. He surrenders to God and it yields the richest of blessings. His surrender to God yields rich blessings in his life. Look at this, verse 27. Then he said to him, what's your name? This is God asking Jacob his name. And he said, my name is Deceiver. That's what his name meant. I wonder how many times in the life of Jacob the people around him say, hey, remember, your name's Jacob. That's why you're acting this way. I wonder if Laban said that to him. I wonder if, how many times Esau, his brother, said that to him. His whole identity is wrapped up in his scheming and his seeking for blessing in his own way. And so here, you know what Jacob is doing? Like Adam and Eve had to do? He's confessing. He's confessing to God. that He's confessing that I'm a deceiver. This is the way I've been. And I love this. Look at what God says. Verse 28 he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, the deceiver, but Israel. You've been fighting, but God's now going to fight for you. God's fighter. So he takes this guy who's a fighter, and he makes him fight. God is fighting for him, and he's making him a God fighter. It's completely changed who he is. And look at this. His name is Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed and Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? You know who I am, effectively. You know exactly who I am. So look at these blessings. Here's the interesting thing. The rest of the story, you got really three more chapters of Jacob before you get to Joseph. So I'm just going to highlight a couple of things that happen in the life of, of Jacob. You see him come back to Esau. Look at chapter 33. Just glaze over it with me. He comes back to Esau. He's got a deal with Esau. Now he's got a limp. He's limping to Esau. And he's got his whole family in front of him. Real cowardly guy, right? Got his family putting his wife and his children in front of him. Rather than letting all of those go in front of him and appease his brother, what does he do? 
he walks right through and he goes to his brother. Now he has confidence before God. He trusts God that whatever happens, God's gonna take care of him. He's promised him blessing, land, seed, and blessing. He's gonna do it. And guess what? Guess who else's life has changed a little bit? Esau's life has changed a little bit too. Look at it. He himself, verse three in chapter 33, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times. He's been deceiving. He's been trying to avoid his brother for 20 plus years. And he's like, no more. And he embraced him. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. And they fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. There's restoration of relationship. There's confidence that Jacob has before God. What a rich blessing of restoration with his brother. And then what you see at the end of chapter 33, look at it, verse 18 through 20. And they spend time together and then they go about their way and verse 18, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Anybody remember Shechem? What happened in Shechem with Abraham? Abraham's family used to worship the false gods and get taught at Shechem. This is the place of the false god that Abraham built an altar to God and said, you're Yahweh, I'm following you. And so guess what? This is coming back to this place, this place of promise. Jacob comes here to Shechem, and he comes to this piece of land. He bought for 100 pieces of money the piece of land. This is where Jacob's well is in the New Testament in John chapter 4. He pitched his tent, and there he erected an altar and called it El Elo Israel. You know what that means? Here's the translation. God is my God. God is my God. You know what Jacob has done most of his life? His father Isaac, his grandfather Abraham, built altars. They worshiped God. Remember Abraham? He lived in the face of God. He was a friend of God. Most of Jacob's life up until this point, you know how he referred to God? The God of my dad. The God of my grandfather. There was never personal relationship. And because of surrender, because God's broken him, now there is relationship. And so now he builds this altar, which is a place of worship. And he said, this is my God. This is a place in which I am worshiping God, my God. Kids, this is really important. Your mom and dad bring you to church. Your mom and dad want you to know Jesus and follow him. They want you to trust Christ but in the end, that's something that you have to do. You know what Jacob was doing? He was just relying on his dad and mom and grandpa and grandma and their faith and the God of their faith. And now this is personal to him. And you see the same thing in chapter 35. He builds another altar at Bethel. Remember Bethel? This is the place in which he is um, schemed against his brother. And he talks about his God, his God. Not his father's God, not his grandfather's God, but his God. God, the blessing of having relationship with God. Jacob is changed. He still struggles like you and I, but he is a changed man because God broke him and he surrendered to God and he has relationship with him. Listen, um, I got permission to share this story from my daughter, um, so I'm gonna share it. So my sweet Claire, she... When she was real little, she was like the closet, strong-willed child, okay? Closet. You would never know, but, but that's who she was. She was this closet, strong-willed child. And um, love that she was strong as my daughter, because I knew later, like 10 year, 15 years later, that what that meant with boys, that no boys could mess with my girl, and I like that. 
And I remember this story where, and I've told a few of you this story, but she was like two years old. And this is one of the first moments, like, wow. All right, James Dobson, strong-willed child, real nice. Um, so she's swimming. She's getting the mommy and me swim lessons in this pool. And I know what kind of sucker she likes. And so I go over and get her a sucker because when you come out of the pool, you get you know, rewarded with the sucker. And so I get the sucker out. I know she likes the strawberry one. So I grab it and I um, pull the top off of it and I hand it to her and she just stares it right through me. And she, looking at me, she grabs the wrapper out of my hand and puts it back, twist it, looking at me, and twist it and puts it back on the sucker, pulls it off, hands me the wrapper, puts it in her mouth walks off. And that's when I knew. But let me tell y'all, um, I made a profession of faith when I was like seven years old. And I'm not sure that profession of faith is real because there wasn't a whole lot of change. And my parents would say the same thing. And my brothers would definitely say the same thing. Um, but this little girl at age seven, seven, she made a profession of faith in Jesus. And she's still, I like, she has this strength to her. But she is the sweetest thing. And God has changed her and her life as she surrendered to the Lord. And it was stark. There was a stark change in the sweet girl. And that God had done, not something that she had done, but something that God had done in her heart. It's a beautiful picture of how God in the gospel will take our sin away and change us from who we are to, we are, to being his. How is the gospel taking your wild Mustang heart of strength and wielded it to be strength used for him, to use for his glory? How has surrender to the Lord affected your relationship like Jacob and Esau? And kids, is your faith your own? Have you made your parents' faith your own? In a few weeks, we're going to have a baptism, and there's a couple of kids that are going to come up and say, you know what, my mom and dad have taught me this truth about the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's done, but I'm saying today that I've trusted in Christ. And I'm saying today that I'm a Christian before all of you and taking ownership of your faith, not just your mom and dad's faith, not just your grandfather's faith or your grandmother's faith with her wonderful things. So God pursues Jacob in his struggle. He breaks Jacob of his own strength and we see the blessings that come from surrender to God. But what's the greatest blessing? What's the greatest blessing? You know, I told you the story about this really cool place that I went to in college and my motivation to go there. But here's what happened while I was there. I tried to avoid the Bible study and not listen to any of it. But there was this guy who was preaching the Bible. And this guy happened to be from the same city I was from. And they put me in the same cab or the same cottage that he was in. And they put me around all these Christians. See, the people there knew my game because they'd seen it plenty of times with other college golfers. And they knew where I was at with the Lord. And it didn't bother them. It didn't bother them that I was a guy who was just trying to use God to get what I wanted. It didn't bother them at all. As a matter of fact, they were banking on the truth of the gospel to change my heart, even with my bad motivation. And I left that retreat, and for two months, for two and a half months, God wrestled with me. This guy talked about Ecclesiastes, and it seemed like every time he was talking about vanity, vanity, how the world was vanity, except for Christ, he would ask me to read. Every time. I mean, there's a lot of vanities in the Ecclesiastes. He asked me to read it. 
And then he would come and talk to me about the gospel. Like it was almost like this was orchestrated or something. And for two months, I remember getting on the plane going, I don't know what's going to happen to me if I go down right now. I was convicted. The spirit of God was working on me and God was wrestling with my heart. And for a couple months I did that and then I finally gave up the ghost and surrendered to the Lord and said, whatever you want to do with me, you've broken me. So God can do this in our lives. I think, when I think about this, when I think about the surrender, when I think about Christ and the greatest, being the greatest blessing, I think about John 4. You come to John 4 and you see the woman at the well, it's a messed up life. Jesus comes to Samaria, most of the Jews would go around Samaria. He comes to Samaria, to this very place, Jacob's well. It's where Jacob's well, this is where we learn that what Jacob did before, this is Jacob's well, and this woman comes, and Jesus is thirsty, asks the woman for a drink. And the woman is trying to figure out Jesus, asking him questions at Jacob's well. And then she says, are you greater, at Jacob's well, are you greater than our father Jacob? Because Jesus was talking to her about the living water that he brings. She's like, you don't even have a pail. What are you talking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus didn't answer her directly, but he said, I have living water that you know nothing about that'll last forever. Nancy Guthrie said it this way, while Jacob was full of greed and deceit, Jesus was full of grace and truth. While Jacob wrestled alone on a dark night to receive blessing, Jesus wrestled in the dark to gain blessing for you and for me. Jacob could, couldn't look on the face of his adversary and live. God had, has given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And while Jacob asked God to tell him his name, he didn't. He denied to Jacob, but he's given it to us. It's the name above all names, the sweetest name that you can know. See, Jesus, here's your takeaway. He is the greatest and richest blessing. That's what Jacob finally got. He was trying to get blessing from God that was other than God. And what he learned was is that the greatest blessing was God himself. And that's the truth that we need to remember from this text. The greatest treasure, the richest blessing that you could have is Christ himself. Rest in him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this text and Jacob's life. It reminds us often of our own lives that we try to live for the blessing of God apart from the person of God. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and my heart. That I wouldn't be somebody who schemes and comes up with my own plans to receive your blessings. Lord, would I would rest in Christ and who he is, the richest blessing of all. We love you and we thank you for time in your word. We thank you that, the, that your word still speaks to us today. So Lord, we pray that you would use your word in our lives through the power of the Spirit to change us a little bit more today. And Lord, I pray for, for folks here that, that have a limp. They can think of it in their minds right now, whether it's physical or circumstantial, that remind them of your strength and their weakness. And Lord, I, I pray for them. I pray that they would not lose heart. This is what we want to do when faced with obstacles and 
struggles in our lives, but we would cling as Jacob did. We would cling to you and rest in you, the one true treasure in Jesus' name. Amen.